Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. This is the ninth episode of Our Voices, my monthly feature where you have the chance to hear the personal journeys of people you might not otherwise meet. I invite you to listen with curiosity, without judgment, and gain empathetic understanding for what may be very different life experience of what it means to grow up go to school, struggle, work, and live in our world. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that levels the playing field and helps everyone live to their full potential. You may see a bit of yourself in these journeys and hopefully embrace we're more similar than not. Today is especially personal for me. I realized that since the show first aired in November of 2019, I've had very few Asian voices on the show. I was born in the States and proud to be American, though I identify more closely with my Chinese heritage. I didn't grow up in a particularly melting pot environment and was generally in the ethnic minority at school and at work. Other than my spectacular parents, I had few Asian role models per se. So I'm over the moon about my guest today, who is an extraordinary human being, someone I admire at every level, who she is, the impact she has, and how deeply she cares for all those fortunate to be around her. Count yourself remarkably blessed to have a colleague, friend, or family member like her. She grew up in Hong Kong, studied abroad at Cornell and the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and then entered the world of venture capital, initially in Silicon Valley with SoftBank and PacRim Ventures. Now she's a managing partner of Chi Ming Venture Partners, leading all the healthcare investments of the firm which manages $5.9 billion in assets and investments in over 380 companies. Recognized by the Forbes Global 100 VC Midas list in 2019 and 20, and named a top three best female venture capitalist in China by Forbes in 2018, she also values serving her community. She's a visiting lecturer at Harvard Law School on the Advisory Council of Stanford's Business School and board member of the Hong Kong Airport Authority and Hong Kong Palace Museum. I am delighted to introduce my dear friend, Nisa Leong. Nisa, welcome to Our Voices. Hi, Molly. It's great to be on. Thank you. Well, it just is such a pleasure for me, and it seems like a lifetime ago, and at the same time, just yesterday, we first met. You were celebrating graduation from Cornell, also my beloved alma mater, a world, a possibility ahead. Um, while your accomplishments in a male-dominated field might seem so stratospheric, what stands out for me is how you move through space with deep humility, always focused on others. And at the same time, this unyielding focus on creating and adding value, however you set out to. And you know, the word grace comes to mind, Nisa. Um, I'm really grateful for your willingness to share your journey. And would you just start with your childhood days and help listeners get to know you a bit? Thanks, Molly. Actually, before I do that, I would love to um, tell the um, listeners how we met. Please. <clears throat> I, I remember um, we first met uh, at a Cornell event, um, and I was still at um, business school. And, um, and you were speaking um, and talking about how you and your team mastered 
the whole integration process at Cisco after so many acquisitions. So, and, you know, we're all mesmerized by how well you did that. And, um, and then, you know, all the things that you did. So, and then thereafter, I, I went up and, um, and introduced myself. So I'm very glad that, you know, all these years later, um, you know, we're very good friends. So thank you. So wonderful. Um, Thanks for reminding me. I forgot. About that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, I was actually born in um, Champaign, Illinois, because my um, parents were both Illini, and that's where they met. And, um, but when I was about three years old, my, um, my parents couldn't find a job. My dad could only work in, uh, even with a master in double E, he, um, he had to be a waiter in, uh, in, Col- in Chinatown. So he decided to um, move back to Hong Kong to find jobs. So I grew up in, uh, in Hong Kong and, um, and then eventually did um, part of my high school in UK and then also uh, in Connecticut and then um, in college. And, you know, um, and so forth. So it's been, um, you know, I always consider myself as, um, uh, you know, Asian American since I was born um, in U.S. And, um, and then, so, you know, that's why we, and we still have a lot of relatives in the U.S. So it's great to, um, we go back at least twice a year. Yeah. Um, Tell me a little bit about um, your first, do you have early memories at all before you left? And then going back to Hong Kong. And I'm just wondering the feelings of um, where you associate or identify with more and maybe how other people viewed you coming, you know, from one direction to the other. Um, I think, you know, back then it's, um, it's really um, interesting because I, my first language was English. And because my mother um, was also working as a research assistant, trying to make a living, so, um, you know, I was in a nursery <clears throat> and basically, you know, for the first three years of my life and every day, you know, she would always be the last person to pick me up from the nursery. And the nursery was one run by um, um, some very nice Hispanic ladies. Um, Mom told me and um, and that's why she the the lady who took care of me uh, called me Nisa. So that's why, you know, I was named Nisa thereafter. Um, but I didn't really learn Chinese until. I moved back to, we moved to Hong Kong uh, at three. And uh, I remember it was very difficult <clears throat> at the beginning when all these kids, um, you know, laughed at me and said that, you know, I didn't really sp- spoke any, um, any Chinese. So, um, but, you know, it was, um, it was definitely a very um, interesting um, experience. And I, I must say that um, when I graduated from high school in Connecticut, um, my intention was to go to Illinois, where I was born, the campus of the uh, University of Illinois, and, uh, and studied there. So that's where I spent my freshman year. And I still remember um, going back to campus. And the first thing I did was went to the hospital where I was born to ask for the, my birth um, record. And I, I saw that, uh, which was really neat. They kept it after, you know, so many years. So um, but you know, I only stayed for a short period of time um, in Illinois, and then the second year onwards, then I got transferred to Cornell. But you know, growing up in Hong Kong um, was a very um, was a great experience in the sense that um, um, the uh, Hong Kong back then was still starting um, in the in the seventies, and um, and then everybody worked really really hard. But um, but it was very difficult. <clears throat> 
in um, in school. I was actually um, I had I went to three different kindergartens because we moved around quite a bit. Um, the first time we moved back when I was three, we were staying in a um, a 100 square feet, 150 square feet apartment with my pa- uh, grandparents and the five other um, children that they had. So um, and then so when Dad, Mom, and myself we added to you know, this whole gang living in a very, very small apartment. Um, and so, you know, everybody sharing like a few beds and things like that. Um, and I think we lived there for about half a year. And then thereafter, um, dad found a place and rented a, a slightly bigger place and have us moved out. But, you know, so that's why at the beginning um, of my staying, of our living in Hong Kong, we moved around. Um, there was... Um, and in different public housings and things like that. Um, and some of my kindergartens, actually the two kindergarten schools, I think they've been, since been shut down. But then my um, parents enrolled me in a primary school um, and it was a convent girls' school, uh, Marinol Convent School. And I grew up a lot of, um, grew up, I, I stayed there until grade seven and thereafter went to a girls' school, boarding school in UK. Um, but the convent girls' school, I really, looking back, I really enjoyed um, the teaching from all the nuns and the Christian values. Um, and I was thinking, <clears throat> even yesterday, that I want to go and buy a um, um, couple of Bibles and go through, with so much free time now, to go through passages of the Bible with, my, um, with our son on a regular basis. Um, because even you know, religious schools these days, uh, they, they don't have time to teach them values as much. Um, and they're teaching mostly content. But in any case, you know, it was, it was not particularly pleasant. I remember I was not a very good student. Um, you know, I was, um, my, the teachers always wanted to see my, my mom. And, um, but, um, you know, and I think my mom saw that it was quite difficult for me. So then, and I was becoming quite rebellious um, and, uh, and then, so she was talking to, um, our pediatrician and his wife and, uh, who they have three kids actually studying in boarding school in UK. So then they decided to send me out to boarding school because my parents were at that time starting a business and they were, we hardly saw them. And thereafter we had, you know, I also have two younger brothers. So, um, they sent me to boarding school, but the first time when I went, it was, um, it was actually with my pediatrician's wife and the children because my parents were too busy at work. Um, and then they found me a guardian, which was very, and the guardian actually had a couple of um, children who were also studying as day student at this boarding school. So they took care of me, but the first time we moved into a dorm, it was a 16 beds, you know, a very big room with 16 beds, eight um, beds on one side and you know, and so forth. And everybody just had a little cabinet. Um, and it was quite difficult for a 12 year old. But what's really interesting is after I started studying abroad, um, I actually grew closer to my parents because my parents wrote um, telegrams. And back then there were telegrams, um, telegrams and letters to me regularly in Chinese. And then also um, cut out newspaper articles um, on just not about news, but about, you know, little, um, you know, articles at the end about life, about art and things like that. And, um, and so I, 
um, taped every article into my little scrapbook. And um, that's how I kept up with Chinese. Um, so, you know, two years of that in the UK and I made a lot of really good friends, but, you know, but still were, um, I would say that um, it was still quite miserable because I mean, you know, for those of you who've lived in U UK, when you, in the, um, uh, in the winter, it gets dark at 3 p.m. So in the morning school and it's, you know, away from the family, it's, it's not easy. So, um, and my parents were saying, why don't you just move to uh, U.S. because eventually you're going to study um, school, uh, university in, in U.S. So they found a, um, a boarding school for me, a co-ed for the first time uh, boarding school. So I moved there. And it turns out, I mean, I remember um, how difficult it was to, to be um, in a boarding school in U.K. I still remember... <clears throat> When we were in UK boarding school, we only had in the morning to eat um, baked beans and egg and uh, burnt toast. And then the only thing that we could drink was um, coffee and some tap water. I remember looking at the headmaster one morning and she was holding to something that I felt looked very familiar. And after thinking for about a minute, minute then I recognized that it's actually a, a glass of orange juice that I haven't seen for a long, long time. <laughs> wow. So when I went to uh, US, you know, they had skim milk, full whole milk, you know, <laughs> two percent <laughs> milk, chocolate milk, and lots of cereals. I mean, the life is so different, um, and so you know, it just feels so resourceful uh, in the US, and there's just a lot of freedom. Um, and I, I learned a lot. I became a lot more out, you know, um, outgoing. And I participated in a lot of extracurriculars and a lot of volunteer works, which was also something that um, the school really provided and, uh, you know, invited the, uh, the students to do. So, um, so, you know, it really opened up my mindset. And I think, and that's why, um, at, and the, the school's name is Hotchkiss, it's in Connecticut. And that's why I'm still very much involved with Hotchkiss because I felt that's one of the turning points for me where I, um, turned from a very in, a, like inward person, um, to a much more outgoing person, and um, and so after Hotchkiss, but during Hotchkiss, this, the last year I was so busy with all these extracurriculars that I fell sick and I got uh, meningitis. So um, you know the I got taken away uh, in an ambulance from uh, Connecticut to a children's hospital in New York and was in coma for about a week. And luckily I, you know, woke up and, um, and then the, the doctor said, oh, you know, you may lose your hearing and whatnot. So, but luckily I, I didn't. Um, but as a result, I couldn't really finish most of my APs and couldn't get my uh, applications in on time. And, and so, you know, I was very fortunate that you, Illinois, um, received me, accepted me and, um, and so I, that's why, you know, at the beginning I said I, I went there. And I must say, I love the Midwest. It's such a great place. The people there are so nice. And I made some really, really longtime friends that I still, great longtime friends that I still keep in touch with. Um, and, um, but I think after a year um, in Illinois, I felt that I missed East Coast, um, the internationalism and the diversity of the um, student body. So then I went to Cornell. And, um, and I also met some really great friends. And since Cornell, it's in the middle of nowhere. That's the only thing you could do is really hang out with your friends. 
So, um, so then, you know, we had some great few years at Cornell. Um, and then, um, and then I worked for a few years and then afterwards went back to school at Stanford for an MBA. Um, in fact, when I got into um, uh, business school, um, I, I actually was not going to apply, but a friend in Hong Kong asked me, oh, you know, since you're going to visit some friends at HBS and Harvard Business School and Stanford, can you pick up the applications for me so I can apply? So I did, and then I brought them back to Hong Kong and then she said, she's not applying. So then the application forms were just sitting on my desk and I'm like, okay, well, since I have nothing better to do, so why don't I apply? So then, um, and surprisingly, I, I got in. So when I went in, uh, when I got accepted, um, I was thinking how to tell my parents. So then I went in to talk to my um, dad. My dad's first reaction was, uh, aren't you going to get married? Why why um, go to MBA? Go, why go to B school? Just stay in Hong Kong, just get married. Because I had a boyfriend back then. And then I thought, well, you know, the First of all, the boyfriend was not really somebody who I feel very, um, not necessarily the right guy at that time yet. And, um, and I thought, well, it's, you know, it's actually quite hard to get into Stanford Business School. So, you know, and if it's, uh, if it only takes two years and it's the right guy, maybe he'll wait for me. So then, you know, then I, you know, and mom was very, very supportive. So, um, so then I decided to go and it was a, a life-changing experience naturally. Can I just go back as a child? So did you feel lonely? I mean, you know, you're in this foreign place eating. I mean, we are food people. I know how much you love food. So if you're eating, if you're eating the same thing, I'm just wondering, you know, were you, were you sad or was it just like, I'm just doing this? Did you resent your parents at all for having you there? I'm just curious, any of the emotions as a young person so far away from home? I mean, that's remarkable. I think, you know, it was very, very difficult at the beginning. Um, I think I was so homesick. It's incredible. But I think that also took us, took me, brought me to that level where I thought, because before when I was so close to my family, my parents, um, I didn't really appreciate them as much. And, um, and then I think being away and then seeing friends who all miss their family so much. And then sort of reminiscing about and talking, you know, with others in boarding school. Um, it really, you know, it was difficult, but I was, I must say, I was so, so fortunate um, that the our pediatrician's wife um, introduced me to this guardian family who lived so close by. So almost every weekend I would bring my laundry over and they're also from Hong Kong incidentally um, and, they're from Asia, and um, and so I love having their fried rice and this and that and whatnot, and hung out with the kids. Um, but it was very very difficult, and um, um, and I think that um, just learning the language itself to that level, and then also I remember everybody was already in year three in French, and I never learned French, so I actually had to go in. Um, you know, talk to the teachers, you know, sort of to, um, to catch up uh, two years of work. So, you know, all that on, on my own. And then, of course, back then, we also did not have um, washing machines. Um, so we had these little um, uh, basins in the toilet. I think we had, because there's so many girls there, 
we have like a, our toilet has 20 basins side by side, like just in one row. So, you know, every weekend I used to like occupy like 10 of them and just to wash all my clothes by hand. And uh, we also didn't have dryers. So we just hung out, hung out clothes in the heater room. So, you know, every week like that. Um, but I think that type of, um, you know, experience is very, is character building. Um, you know, even kids these days, when they go to boarding school in UK, they have washing machines. <laughs> so we're like, oh, you know, but washing your clothes by hand is a great experience. <laughs> so, but, but I think, you know, I, I really appreciate. And then also in UK, um, there were so many rules and regulations, but the, the students, the girls just grew so much together by breaking the rules together and getting punished and standing in front of the headmistress's office together. Um, I mean, you know, that type of thing. But, and I also realized that there's a, there's a as I studied at, um, in Connecticut in US and then also the ex my experience at UK, the two cultures are very different. I think in some ways the uh, British, um, at the early onset, they're more reserved, but you know, they are very, very nice people to know in the long, long term. And even my um, guardian family and the kids, I see them, I've been seeing them every two years or so, um, you know, visiting them every time when I drop by and um, in, uh, in England or if they, you know, come to Asia. So, um, so it's just really nice to have, but, you know, and I, sometimes I think about, you know, I, I get asked by other friends whether or not we may send our children to school so early on. And I must say that, you know, I, we probably won't because we, you know, we don't want to miss these early years of their childhood. Um, but at the same time, that international travel, it really opens up the eyes for young people. And I really appreciated that experience also. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. When your dad, I can, I just can't even imagine you going in like, okay, I've been accepted to Stanford and now somehow I have to break this to my parents. When your dad said, uh, well, you know, get married. And I get this, my mother's, my grandmother had never <laughs> expected my mother to work a day in her life. And so were you like shocked, incensed, or you were like, that's what you expect your dad to say? I'm really curious how that landed for you. I think that that's kind of um, what I, I was a little bit shocked, but I also kind of expected dad to say that because he feels that it's very important for me to get settled down, to find the right guy. And um, I think, you know, he's probably less worried about my brothers. It's, it's, you know, I think for girls, I was already in my late 20s. And um, he just felt that, you know, they got married in the early 20s. And uh, I was already late 20s. So, you know, better catch up, <laughs> you know, things. So, um, yeah, but I'm, I'm so glad that mom was very supportive. Um, I think in our, in our family, uh, I never really got any pressure from my parents. Um, and they didn't really have a high expectations of me either. Um, you know, they never really said, oh, you got to get A's and whatnot. I remember I got hit by, my mom hit me with a ruler on my hand once when I got 60, but that was the only time. Um, I mean, after that, she kind of gave up. She's like, okay, whatever. So, um, you know, so even, I think, um, I remember at Cornell, um, I was talking to a trustee and the, the trustee was saying to me, she said, you know, in my experience, um, the people who became really successful after college 
are the ones who got 3.1 GPA and lower. And I said, oh, that's a great, you know, target to have. I would just focus on B minus and under, you know, so instead of studying really hard. So, um, and I, I think that worked out. You know, some people are just better students and some people are not. And, um, and I was not a very good student. Um, so, Nisa, um, when did you, when did it light up for you how much impact you could have? I mean, you have done so many amazing things, which we're going to get to now. So you're in business school and was it just seeing and talking, you know, the kind of flow of, of activity that, that woke all that up in you? Because you, I mean, it's, it's, I, I'm kind of shocked to hear, <laughs> to hear some of this. I'm like, what? So I think that, um, you know, when I applied to business school later on, I found out the average GPA uh, in my class was 3.75 out of four. So I was like the lowest GPA in our year. Um, but what's really interesting, and when I went to business school, I felt that um, I really knew everything. Um, I've started companies before, and I knew that, you know, um, I would go back and do the same thing. Um, but after like talking to all these classmates who come from different backgrounds and, um, and everybody, you know, just, I mean, everybody has, you know, some level of achievement or another, but at the same time, I must say that I learned a lot from the speakers uh, at Hotchkiss and at B school. I mean, the speakers at Hotchkiss that really stuck in my mind um, was Henry Cisneros Back then, he was still the mayor of San Antonio. And then thereafter, he became the secretary of um, housing, I remember. It was very, very inspiring and impressive. And then another person was Toni Morrison. Um, she was a frequent speaker at Hotchkiss. And I really, really enjoyed meeting her and speaking to her and listening to her you know, talk about her books and whatnot. And then at B School um, was, um, you know, Andy Grove was one of our teachers. I also took a class uh, and he was a um, CEO of um, Intel. I also took a class on entrepreneurship from John Mortgage at, uh, at Cisco. <laughs> um, yeah, and then also, um, you know, first generation venture capitalist, John Glenn and many others. So they were all so inspiring. Um, so, but what really changed was, um, was when I was a, a surprise visit by a Cornell, my dean of um, um, hotel admin. He, um, he called me up, you know, two weeks earlier and said, hey, you know, I'm visiting uh, Bay Area. Let's meet up. And, um, and I said, yeah, that'd be great. So I took him to Stanford campus. It was a Friday afternoon. And it turns out that the Stanford, uh, the GSB, the business school, was holding its auction that afternoon where the students could auction to have lunch or meet with alum. And so, you know, I brought him into that auditorium and we sat down and I've never actually experienced the auction. It was the end of first year business school. And so that was a lot of fun. And so, you know, I, and I bid for something and what I bid was to make breakfast on a Sunday morning um, for uh, Stanford alum, Heidi Roizen. And uh, Heidi Roizen back then, she was the, the one of the first um, evangelists for Apple, software evangelists for Apple 
together with Guy Kawasaki. Um, but at that time, she was a partner at SoftBank. And so, you know, I, um, I reach out to Heidi, um, not really knowing who she is, and, uh, and then asked a couple of classmates to join. And then we went to a supermarket and bought some eggs and ham and, you know, a bagel, some bagels, and then went to a home in Atherton and made her breakfast, she and her two kids. And then her associate, uh, also a GSB grad, uh, who's two years ahead of us, Pete, uh, was there as well. So after breakfast, she asked us, so, you know, there was a really good breakfast. So what, how can I help you guys? You know, and my two classmates asked her a question and she answered one after another. And then I said, well, I don't really have any questions for you, but I don't have a summer job. Would you give me, I mean, you know, would you be looking for some intern? <laughs> and she said, oh, sure. So then she asked Pete to, um, you know, follow up on that. And um, so I was very fortunate. That first year summer, I was working as uh, SoftBank as a summer intern. And the first summer intern they've ever had. And um, so during that summer, since nobody really assigned me to do anything, but, you know, I helped out with um, various things. And at the same time, I also looked through the data, um, the database where they had over 8,000 business plans that they have looked at. And uh, some of them they have um, invested and some of them they turned down. So I looked at all the, um, you know, all this and just learning why they turned down companies and why they invested. You know, there are companies like Yahoo, I mean, Webvan, you know, pet.com, you know, things like that. So, you know, a lot of these, I'm like, wow, this is really, really interesting. I mean, I learned so much during that summer and I continued to work there um, in fall term. Um, I, lot, I learned a lot more than being in business school. And that was really interesting because that was 99, that was the summer of 2000. And, um, and so I was doing business school between 99 and 2001. And as some of you um, who are old enough would remember, there was actually a, a downturn, um, you know, in 2000 and, um, and, and 2001 as well. So I still remember uh, in 99, there would be a, uh, a famous VC who would come on campus and tell us, as a startup, if you haven't raised at least $30 million for your marketing budget, um, you're dead. So we're like, okay, notes taken down. And that guy came over again um, early 2001 after a crash. And we asked him, hey, oh, you know, so does that still hold true? He said, oh, I was wrong. <laughs> you know, you, you should not be burning money like that. So, um, you know, so it's, it's very, very interesting to see. And then I sat in a couple of meetings with um, these um, partners at SoftBank where before the crash, um, I remember there was uh, one meeting where there were two HBS students who came by first year with a business plan. It, they, after 20 minutes of presentation, the partner right there and then said, okay, good, I'll invest 10 million into you guys. I'm like, whoa, what, what is the business model again? I don't understand. <laughs> so, so um, you know, so it's, it's definitely a great, great learning experience. But I must say that um, after that summer, because of the crash, um, there was an incubation center within the SoftBank office. And there were about 30 companies there. And uh, lots of people, you know, just um, probably three or four uh, to five people in each company all sitting, you know, uh, next to each other. Um, half a year after the crash, there were only three companies left out of the 30. 
So it was very real. It was, um, I also had a lot of friends who lost their job, right? Um, 50% of my friends who were in BC by the time 2002, 2003, they lost their BC job. So um, this is all very real and very, uh, it's, it's a guiding um, power for me as I enter the VC world, because I have seen the up and down. I have seen a cycle, how it crashed um, and, um, and how people um, behaved, you know, during that time. And um, I mean, some of my classmates, when we graduated 2001 was very, very difficult. Half of our class couldn't find a job. And, um, you know, some classmates who got jobs, I remember one classmate got a job at BCG and, um, and then he was so happy and he just got married, he decided to get an apartment. But then shortly after he committed to an apartment, he got put on the bench and he got a put on the bench for nine months and then eventually he lost the job. So it was very, very difficult. Um, and he had to sell his apartment because he couldn't afford it anymore. So, you know, we've seen all that and we keep saying, you know, it might happen again, it might happen again. And we're always ready for that. But, you know, that's my guiding light in some sense. Um, so, you know, why did I go into, so after business school, um, you know, I was um, a professor, um, my text professor um, gave me a job uh, at, her, at his firm called Oak Hill Partners, but I was also put on a branch. So then, you know, four months of on the bench, I thought, okay, why don't I join a smaller fund? And that's Pac-Man Ventures. And I made some investments in healthcare, in tech. And then shortly thereafter, um, an uncle, distant uncle living in Southern China um, actually has a liver cancer. So we were looking all over for good therapeutics for him, but there weren't anything available in China back then. But I saw that, you know, investing in U.S., there are actually a lot of really good products. So I decided to quit my job and, um, and then start a company basically distributing um, good U.S., you know, medical devices on cancer treatment into China. So um, it took me nine months to negotiate uh, the first deal. Uh, and it's a company based out of uh, uh, Mountain View, California. And... Uh, and then when I was, um, um, you know, selling this product, um, I saw that there's a huge, there were in a, in, a, in a surgery, the doctor had seven of these uh, catheters into the patient's liver at one time. And each catheter costed $1,500. And there's no way at that time that any U uh, Chinese patients can afford that. So, um, and I asked him and he said, oh, you know, we reuse our catheters until they break in different patients. And I'm like, that's terrible. So then after, shortly thereafter, I decided to get a couple of friends together and start the first cancer hospital in Shanghai. And um, it was the most difficult company to ever start because, um, I mean, but it is a good experience, but very, very difficult, you know, hiring doctors and coming out with a name for the hospital and, uh, and really changing the mindset of people because historically people have been going to hospitals, state-owned hospitals. But I felt that, you know, we have to have, we have to offer better um, healthcare services um, to people than, than what we see. Um, but while setting up the hospital, we also saw that there are a lot of cancer drugs not available. So I got together with a friend 
who was the head of sales at um, Bristol Myers Squibb back then in China. And we decided to set up a you know, pharma company distributing drugs um, from the US to China. So, um, you know, we grew it. Um, and, uh, and then we also hired a founding CEO who was the head of commercialization at AstraZeneca. And we, you know, four years later, Fidelity invested and, um, and, uh, and then we also, we, we sold the company to a public company when we had 800 salespeople and selling about 26 um, drugs. And shortly thereafter, um, my old boss at um, SoftBank, um, the CEO of SoftBank in US decided to move his family to um, China. And he and his friend, who's also a friend of mine, uh, head of Intel Capital in China, decided to set up Qiming and asked me whether or not I'd like to um, set up the healthcare practice together um, when, you know, on day one. So I did. And, um, and so, you know, since then, it's been, uh, it's been a great, interesting ride. Back then, nobody really interested in healthcare. Um, all the smart people went to TMT. And, um, and so we were the first, one of the first funds to really start investing in healthcare. And, um, and so we started in 2006. I was still a venture partner part-time because I was so busy with my companies back then. In 2008, um, I was full-time as a partner. And um, since then, we've invested in 130 companies, healthcare companies, and 380 companies all, all around in Chimane. So it's been a great, great learning experience for us. Um, and, um, and I think one of the... Um, you know, and we invest on the healthcare side. We invest across the board um, from um, pharmaceutical to new drug discovery, medical devices, diagnostic uh, healthcare services, now healthcare IT, AI, and so forth. So, um, you know, it's really amazing to see. And I, I must, you know, share with you one thing. What I, what I saw is that... Um, Back in um, when we had SARS in 2003, when Hong Kong had SARS, um, it was very difficult because uh, in China, we had no experience, no know-how, how to even develop a diagnostic test to test whether or not a person has SARS. We had to send the strain to overseas for people to develop the test for us, uh, let alone drugs or vaccines or anything. But you know, now, this time around, we had 60 of our portfolio companies working frontline in Wuhan a year ago, exactly a year ago, um, helping out, you know, spanning from vaccine to um, diagnostic to drugs and healthcare IT. I mean, you know, a, a case in point, um, CanSino, one of the companies that I've been involved with very, very early on, they never developed I mean, nobody ever would know about this, but I invested in the company because they were the most sophisticated vaccine company and they were developing a whole suite of children vaccine that has no live virus in them. This is the first ever company to develop vaccine, the whole suite of children vaccine with no live virus. So um, they're also developing the Prevner, you know, and so on and so forth. But they were able to develop you know, very early on a COVID vaccine based on the strains that were provided in public. Um, another company of ours is a, a the key diagnostic lab and in Wuhan for the two um, COVID hospitals. And um, I still remember the day 
that Wuhan closed, the COO of that company, um, CM Labs, said that I'm right outside of Wuhan. They just closed the, the border. Um, and uh, I understand that in two or three days time, they're going to open up for medical professionals to go in. Uh, I, I'm waiting outside in one of the, um, uh, you know, hotels. So when it's, it's ready, we'll go in. But the problem is we don't have any PPE with, you know, so, so then immediately we got all these CEOs um, together in a chat group and everybody's looking PPE for each other um, for this uh, diagnostic. Um, so, um, and, and now, I mean, they have, they, because of COVID, they're now grown from the ninth, the largest in China to fourth largest in China um, and, you know, doing testing all over China. But at the same time, I just felt so amazed by the commitment they have. Another company of ours is a ventilator company. Uh, they're the sec second largest ventilator machine company. And it was a very, you know, they've always um, um, been doing well. But in the first half of last year, uh, none of their um, people um, took day off at all. And they worked so, so hard just to get the machines out, not only in China, um, thereafter, but also to um, to Europe, to I mean, to London, to UK, Italy, and I also connected them to the office of Cuomo in New York um, to send them ventilators. So you know, everybody just works so so hard to look for solutions. So I I think you know it's really great to see how everybody's working together to, to um, combat um, COVID. And, uh, and same thing for drug discovery as well, yeah. It's amazing that you are so, you know, you are so pioneering, Nisa. And, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, were there headwinds and naysayers or were you just so focused on just driving forward? You know, when you hear in hindsight, someone did something, oh, you know, it looks so obvious perhaps. And so I'm, I'm just wondering if you knew how, how pioneering you were, um, did you have any doubts? And then as you see these companies, you know, as a, as a VC and, you know, you've seen when it hasn't worked, I'm, I would like to hear how, how you think about it, how much of it is the numbers, you know, how you make your own assessments of where to, um, to invest. Well, you know, the thing is when I moved to um, China to do uh, healthcare, China is so behind in healthcare. Uh, India was actually way ahead of us. And there's no way that China would even become, nobody could fathom China could become the second largest market in the world in healthcare. And, um, but I just felt that there's a need. Everything that I invest in, everything that I do, it's always stems out from the need. Um, I think when there's a need, then, you know, things will work out. So, you know, of the 130 healthcare companies that we invested in, 75% of our investments are in series A where there are only two or three people, um, where this is the first time they are raising money. So there's actually a very, very high risk of failure. But, you know, so far we've only had one failure and one company that returned 80%. The rest are actually doing okay. Um, some of them doing quite well. You know, we've had 12 IPOs last year, 10 are in healthcare. But we spend a lot of time helping these companies. Um, and I enjoy it because, you know what? When, when I decided to be a VC, and that's the year that I'm getting married, and I'm like, okay, 
I really don't want to get married and then flying around and not see my husband all the time. <laughs> so, so I'm like, okay, it's a lot better to be stationed in one place. And I occasionally fly to, you know, different places to see companies, but that's fine. And the second thing is, you know, these entrepreneurs are so hardworking. I mean, they live in hotels that are $20 a night. They travel not on flights. They travel on trains, not in first class, in like normal classes. So I don't think I can work as hard as they do. And so I said, okay, well, you know, my lifestyle changed. And, but, you know, that entrepreneur spirit is still in me. I love to help folks, you know, succeed. That's what I do. So, um, so I think that even, I mean, one of the companies that I, one of the first companies I invested in back in 2009 was this, um, you know, um, person, scientist who his company had not had any, it's always been about $400,000 um, of profit for three years, no growth. And a good friend of mine back then, he was a head of uh, Merck in China. He said, don't invest in him. There's no growth. He's just going to go under. So, um, and even my associates were telling me, don't invest in this uh, company. There's too many insulin companies in China. And he's just another one of them. And, um, but I did, because I felt that, you know, I felt that he was um, a very determined guy. And, um, and then, so, and then he also has a lot of um, qualities in him that I find, you know, very, very good as entrepreneur. So I backed him and now it's the largest, um, insulin company in China, but I spent the first few years, 50% of my time helping him, identifying talents, uh, directions, getting, um, you know, global companies to partner with them. And, um, and then also, you know, government relations to trying to look for land and a whole lot of other things. So every time, and through the years, every time when there's a problem, you know, he always say, okay, Nisa, you handle, I'm just going to focus on R&D. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> um, I can, I mean, we're, we had, we recently at our CEO summit, uh, he and I, and he never, he, I mean, he never takes interviews, but um, including Forbes magazine wants to put him on a cover page, um, the, uh, you know, cover page uh, a month ago. And he said no, but in our CEO summit, he had a one-on-one -on -one interview with me and uh, he and I laughed, you know, of all the troubles that I had to deal with for him and resolve for him, uh, I could write a book. And he said, absolutely. <laughs> you know, so, you know, that's, that's how it's like to be a VC. I think most VCs don't really spend as much time helping the companies, but, you know, I think that's what I do. I like to see them succeed. I like to, to, to become the best um, in, you know, in their field. And, um, and so, you know, and it's, I, I see a lot of enjoyment. It's, it's great. And I think, this is something that I learned. I mean, my mother, uh, when we grew up, she spent a lot of time doing volunteer works. And we've learned that the best way um, to help others is really to see how, to see ways um, to help them succeed in any form or way. I think Molly, you're doing, doing the same thing. I mean, by coaching people, by telling them what, um, how they can do better. This is, helping, assisting people how to succeed. And by doing so, I, we get a lot of enjoyment and, you know, just, you know, working hard together. But at the same time, um, it also puts us ourselves less important, you know, where if we can put others more important. And that's what healthcare is about. And I love what we do.
I don't see what I do as a job. I mean, being able to develop drugs or devices or diagnostics testing that can serve, that can be affordable, that can serve the world. So, and I think um, that's where China can really play a role. Uh, when I had, when I spoke at a conference two years ago in Boston, at the Mass General and uh, Brigham Women's, um, you know, conference, healthcare conference, um, I think the the conclusion was China is solution to affordable healthcare in the world, and China and U.S. working together to make it happen. And so, you know, there's, um, I think, you know, this is this is what needed, and I, you know, given what we see with COVID, increasingly so. Um, so, you know, so that, that's, that's what drives me and t- gets me up every day. <laughs> so fabulous. I love, 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 love it. Um, changing tax a bit. Um, we talked a little bit about this. Gender, the VC is not known to be uh, heavily male, a female <laughs> populated and led. I know they're trying to change that. I'm just wondering your own personal experience. Nisa, did you feel headwinds or tailwinds? Um, you know, in your career, wherever you were geographically, I'm just wondering what your experience was. Well, I think, you know, I was so fortunate to start um, working as a VC in Silicon Valley, the heart of innovation. Um, and, um, and having worked at SoftBank and, and um, Petrim and really, you know, networking and getting to know the field and whatnot, you know, a couple of my... Um, classmates who are a year ahead of me, um, they have all become very, very successful VC, um, you know, in the field. They're all like top 10 VCs in the U.S. constantly and things like that. Um, but, you know, they're all white male, I, I must say. So it's, um, I mean, you know, very early on, I recognize that as, a, as an Asian woman, uh, you know, it's very, very difficult to be able to network and be able to find good deals early. It's very hard to compete um, because there's already an existing network um, inside of groups, right? So, um, so, but being a VC in China is actually a lot easier. I mean, let me give you an example. Um, there was um, there were a couple of uh, roundtable discussions organized by Women Foundation and things like that in Hong Kong a few years back, and um, you know it was held at the KKR's office. And, um, and half of the, and they were basically all female partners of different firms, PE funds and BC funds um, from China and US. So consistently, um, all the US female partners were saying that there's some sort of um, discrimination. And in fact, a member of the KKR partner said, you know, she's always the one who's going to get the coffee or the tea. For the other partners, and um, whereas you know the Chinese female partners, we said we never have this issue. Um, I mean, there's a lot more equality in China than um, than a lot of other places, and I think one of the reasons is because when um, early on, you know, being the Communist Party and this and that, early on when there was a war. Um, the civil war or whatnot, the, all the women actually had to run the factories and the families while the men all go out to fight the war. So very early on in this you know, society, 
it's always very, woman has a very equal role as the men in China. Um, and so we're very, very fortunate actually to, um, to be in this field um, and, um, and working in China. I still remember um, the insulin company that I talked about, um, you know, the, the founder, he said, and he's like about um, late 60s now, but he said, when I first met him, he, he told his colleague, he said, oh, you know, we should let this um, uh, female comrade, you know, invest in us, you know, she's great, you know, so I'm like, okay, you know, this is really interesting. Um, because I mean, yeah, out of having grown up in Hong Kong, it's a, it's a different culture for, for me, right? So, um, but I think that's, um, you know, we're very, very fortunate to see that. And our firm has actually, you know, interestingly, there was a, um, um, a study done, um, I forgot, by some you know, U.S. organization. Um, and, um, and they found that, gosh, five years ago, we were the second largest, no, we were the second most diverse um, uh, VC fund uh, globally with the most number of female partners, second most female partners. But I must say that we probably have the most now. So um, five out of 11 partners are female in our firm. Wow. So I think, you know, it's, um, it's really great, you know, and w- I would love to see that more and more in other firms in China as well as in U.S. Do you have one thing, and this is a bigger topic, but if there was one thing of advice for uh, women in your field in the U.S., is there anything you might offer as a way to help them help themselves? Or what would you say maybe to the field actually to help? You know, we know people would like to address this, but we haven't maybe we haven't made the the gains we would like. I think that you the female uh, investors have a very unique role, um, and we have a different eye for companies. So some of the top investors in China are female. Um, in fact, you know Kathy Xu, you know who invested in JD.com. I mean, you know she probably uh, her. She made like billions of dollars for her fund just from that deal. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of times the way, the angle we look at things, a lot of times we look at, we use instinct. We have a gut feeling about whether or not this works, this team. Um, and especially when we're doing early investment, being able to read personalities, being able to read whether or not this team uh, will work out. I think females have actually a very unique edge for that. Um, and so, you know, I, I say that there's actually, um, I mean, now there's, you know, this whole movement, um, you know, wanting to get, having, promoting more females into partnerships. But I mean, you know, sometimes I also feel that, you know, there can be more females starting their own venture funds, um, not necessarily joining, you know, funds and whatnot. But, you know, I would, I mean, at any time, just, you know, hire more. And I would also encourage um, more of the, you know, female partners um, being able to mentor more um, young people in this field. And then also investing in more female entrepreneurs because as, I mean, you know, some of our best companies are started by female. So um, yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's something that I would completely um you know, be advocating for and support. That's awesome. I love it. I hope folks are taking note and create your future, start a fund. Um, Nisa, I could go on. This is so amazing. I guess my closing question for you is you've shared so much, so generously, 
such an open heart. What was it like for you to share your story with folks today? Well, you know, thanks, Molly. It's, um, it's really, you know, I really enjoy um, sharing this, um, you know, my experience and whatnot. Um, I mean, you know, I think I, I would be thinking about, you know, 20 years later, what I would add to the story. And I hope that um, what I can add 20 years later uh, would be as exciting um, to what I've shared today. So thank you. I love the lens for the future. You are amazing. If I may be helpful, you know how to reach me. I thank you uh, for being spectacular, my friend, and just an inspiration for all. Um, I will wrap with your quote, the best way to help others is to help them to succeed. And I thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Nisa's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.